Section 9 of Marvels of Scientific Invention. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Linda Marie Nielsen, Vancouver, B.C. Marvels of Scientific Invention by Thomas W. Corbin. Gold Recovery. There has always been something very fascinating about gold. Even in ancient times it was prized above all other things, and apparently it was comparatively plentiful. It is estimated, for example, that King Solomon possessed over four million pounds worth of it, while the little gift which the Queen of Sheba bought him was of the handsome value of six hundred thousand pounds so that she too must have been plentifully supplied with it probably it was more easily come by in those days owing to the richness of the primitive deposits the best of which perchance have been worked out in one respect gold differs from all other metals with the single exception of platinum which is scarcer still in that it appears naturally as gold, not as ore. The little pieces of gold lie in the mine ready to be picked out, and so if the deposit in which it occurs be near the surface, and the particles be of any considerable size, they are sure to be found. A savage may be, and often is, very anxious to secure weapons and tools of iron, little knowing that the very ground which he stands is possibly of iron ore. He covets a single article of iron, and in some cases is willing to give much gold for it, or ivory, or some such treasure, while thousands or millions of tons of ore lie at his feet. Only he does not recognize it, nor would he know how to utilize it if he did. For iron like all other metals except the two just referred to, is found naturally in combination with something else, generally oxygen, and the combination bears no resemblance at all to the metal. The red rust so familiar to us on iron is a combination of iron and oxygen, and is fairly typical of the kind of state in which iron is found in the earth nor would anyone recognize copper ore, lead ore, tin ore, or any of the ores any better than iron ore. All are difficult to recognize. It is said that the highest compliment that a Cornish miner, the finest metalphorous miners in the world, come from Cornwall, or are the product of Cornish influence, the highest compliment that such a man can pay to another is to say that he knows tin, meaning that he can tell tin ore when he sees it. Contrasted with these other metals, gold is easy to find. It does, it is true, under certain conditions, form chemical compounds with other things, as, for instance, in gold chloride, which is present in sea water, but it does not oxidize as the others do, and so when it is in the earth 
it is in the bright yellow grains such as if they be large enough can easily be recognized at sight and it is often found in beds of loose gravel alluvial deposits as they are termed in such cases the gold is to be had simply for the picking up sometimes a lucky find occurs in the form of a big nugget but more often the metal lies in tiny grains at long distances apart so that a ton of gravel has to be sorted over to find a paltry ounce or so of gold yet so desired is it that gold will always fetch its price and an ounce to the ton even less is sometimes worth getting but in the early history of the world there were possibly for particularly generous deposits with plenty of gold in good-sized pieces and such would be quickly discovered and worked by primitive man no doubt the chieftains of those days took much if not all of the gold that their people found and more powerful chiefs and kings would in turn either by force or in trade take it from the weaker so that it is not surprising to learn that some of the mighty kings and potentates of long ago were well supplied with gold yet there are few things more useless its value in the first instance was probably entirely due to its beautiful color and the fact that it does not easily tarnish for this reason coupled with the fact that it was by no means plentiful men liked to deck themselves with it not only adding to their beauty by doing so but advertising to their fellows the fact that they were men of wealth men who possessed what few others had or at all events possessed it more abundantly these three basic facts about gold its beauty its freedom from deterioration and its comparative scarcity give it its peculiar status among the commodities of commerce in that for it and for it alone there is a continuous and universal demand no gold mining company ever shut down its properties because of the falling off in the demand for gold no one ever had to hawk gold about to find a purchaser it is always saleable and hence its value to humanity as the great medium of exchange when a tailor wants bread as has been pointed out by a great political economist he does not go searching for a baker who happens to need a coat if he did he might starve before he found one instead he gives his coat to anyone who needs one no matter what his trade may be taking gold in exchange then he goes with confidence to the baker knowing full well that he in turn will be perfectly ready to give bread in exchange for gold that is the principle upon which gold and in a few cases silver has become the foundation of trade we use it for toning photographs and a few other things but practically speaking it is useless stuff yet certain special circumstances have given it a special function in civilized society and so governments now make it up into little flat discs 
putting their own special stamp upon them as guarantee of size and quality and it is by handing those little discs about that we carry on our trade or even where we use no actual disc we pretend that we do and use a piece of paper the value of which we say is so many discs but that value depends entirely upon the fact that someone has guaranteed on demand to give so many discs for it and the strange thing about it is that although this usefulness of gold depends upon its rarity we lose no opportunity of looking for new sources of supply and so diminishing that rarity as has been said gold is present in sea-water although no one knows how to get it out except at a cost which makes it not worth while but suppose that some genius found a way and gold thus became twice as plentiful as it is now the world would be no better off everything would cost twice as much as it does now that is all a pound is merely so much gold if gold be twice as plentiful people would want twice as much of it in exchange for what they have to sell yet all the same the man who could solve that problem of getting gold from sea-water or from anywhere else in fact would be hailed as a benefactor and for a time at least he would reap a generous harvest even as it is science has done much for the production of gold not as in other metals in finding ways for extracting it from its ores for strictly speaking it has none but in finding ways of catching the tiny particles of metal from the gang as it's called the rock or earth in which they are embedded the trouble is that they are so small so infinitesimally small almost there are two great types of place where gold is found in the alluvial deposits the beds of old rivers the gold is quite loose the convulsions of ages ago have in many cases elevated these beds until now they are on the sides of mountains in such cases the loose gravelly stuff of which they are composed is washed down by a powerful stream of water from a huge hose-pipe terminating in a nozzle called a monitor this process called hydroloosing brings down everything into a pond formed at the foot of a hill and in some cases a boat or raft is floated upon the pond with machinery on board for dredging up the material often a powerful centrifugal pump sucks up the water through a pipe reaching to the bottom of the pond bringing gravel and gold with it arrived in this way upon the raft it all goes on to separating tables by which the gold being heavier is divided from the gravel which is lighter these tables will be referred to again later in non-alluvial workings the gold is embedded in rock of some kind such as that called quartz this is hard somewhat of the nature of granite and before the gold can be liberated it has to be crushed to the lightness of fine sand 
so that the tiny grains of gold can be captured. The quartz is found in veins or lodes, fissures evidently in the original crust of the earth, produced probably as the earth cooled. These have been gradually filled up by the hot volcanic streams of water, which carried not only the gold in solution, but also the materials of which the quartz is formed. It used to be thought that the veins were the result of hot liquids forced up from below by the volcanic action, the rock and metal being themselves in the liquid state through intense heat. It is now more generally held that the water was the vehicle by which the materials were brought in and the vein formed. The gold in the alluvial deposits, too, is now thought to have come there in solution in water, and not by the erosion and washing down of rocks higher up the original river. However that may be, and it is the subject of discussion among geologists and metallurgists, there the gold is today firmly fixed in the hard rock, and the problem which confronts the metallurgist is to get it out with the least expense. The old historic way of breaking up the quartz rock is with what are called stamps, pestles and mortars on a huge scale. There are a number of vertical beams of wood, each shod with iron, fixed in a wooden frame so that they are free to slide up and down. Running along behind the stamps is a horizontal shaft with projections upon it called cams. There is one cam for each stamp, and as the shaft turns slowly round this projection catches under a projection of the stamp, and after lifting it up a short distance drops it suddenly. Thus, as the machine works, the stamps are lifted and dropped in rapid succession. The rock is fed into a box into which the feet of the stamps fall, and thus it is pounded until it is quite small. Meanwhile a stream of water flows through the box and carries away the finely broken particles through a kind of sieve which forms the front of the box, and which allows the fine, small pieces to escape, while holding back the larger ones and keeping them until they too have been crushed. An average stamp will weigh 600 to 700 pounds, and the repeated blows of such a hammer are enough to pulverize the hardest rock. Machines such as these have been employed since the 16th century, at all events, and the improvements of modern times are only as regards details. It may well be wondered, then, why such an old device is still in use and how it comes about that it has not been displaced by something newer and better. The answer, which is an instructive one, well worth bearing in mind by many inexperienced inventors, is that it is so simple. It can be shipped in comparatively small parts and so taken cheaply to any outlandish place. A good deal of it can be made roughly of wood, so that if native timber is available it can be made partly at the mine, and carriage costs saved. Finally, it is so easy to work and to understand 
that the most inexperienced workman can handle it, and there is so little that can go wrong that the most careless attendant cannot damage it. In the bottom of the boxes there is placed some mercury, for which gold has a curious affinity. If a particle of gold once gets in contact with the surface of the mercury, it will not get away again easily. Thus the mercury catches and holds many of the gold particles, which are liberated when the rock is broken up. As it reaches the required fineness, then the crushed rock escapes from the stamp machine and flows away in the stream of water, and although much gold is caught by the mercury, it is by no means all. The stream is therefore directed over tables formed of copper sheets, coated with mercury, so that additional opportunities are given to mercury to catch the grains of gold. Moreover, the table, which, by the way, is placed at a slight incline, is broken at intervals by little troughs of mercury called riffles, which assist in the depositing and catching of the metal particles. But even then all the gold is not captured. The crushed rock is now like sand, and some of the grains still contain gold, which has not been detached by the crushing. The gold, however, makes such grains slightly heavier than the others, and because of that they can be separated. The old way is to use a blanket table, a table that is covered with coarse flannel or blaze, the hairs of which catch these heavier particles as the water stream carries them along, the lighter particles escaping. The grains so caught form what are known as concentrates, since in them the gold is concentrated. The concentrates are subsequently treated as we shall see later. Now we can see how modern scientific methods have supplemented the old ways. Take first the case of the stamp mill or stamp battery. In spite of that prime virtue of simplicity, which has kept it at work almost unchanged for centuries, it has its weaknesses, and no doubt for some purposes crushing mills are better. Of these there are a great variety, several of which depend for their action upon centrifugal force, or, as it is more correctly termed, centrifugal tendency. In these crushing mills there is a ring, generally of steel, inside which are suspended one or more heavy iron rollers. The shafts which carry these rollers are attached by their upper ends to the driving mechanisms on the top of the mill, and when that is set in motion the rolls are carried round and round inside the ring. Because of the centrifugal tendency they swing outwards, pressing heavily against the inner surface of the ring. The rock is fed in in such a way that the rollers, as they roll around the inside of the ring, repeatedly travel over it and crush it. In another type of mill, called the ball mill, the principle is different. There you have a cylinder of steel which turns upon a horizontal axis. This cylinder is partly filled with steel balls of various sizes, and as the mill turns, the rock being mixed with these balls, is pounded and broken up. 
as the mill turns over and over the balls fall upon the pieces of rock thus producing a fine powder other mills again are but refined editions of the common mortar mill and so often seen where building operations are going on in which heavy iron rollers travel over the material to be crushed as it lies in a round pan the blanket table too gives place at the modern mine to the vanner of which there are several varieties essentially they are much the same and a description of two will serve to give an idea of them all let us take the record vanner imagine a large table formed of wood the upper surface covered with linoleum it is fixed on sides so that it can move to and fro endwise it is given a slight slope in the direction at right angles to its length that is to say one edge is a little lower than the other the material is fed on at one end at the higher edge and naturally tends to run down and off at the lower edge it is restrained somewhat from doing this by the presence of rows of riffles or ridges running lengthwise nevertheless it does in a short time finds its way off the table at the lower end by all the time that it is at work the table is being slidden backwards and forwards on the slides by a simple but curious mechanism it is arranged so that it moves quickly in one direction and slowly in the other with the result that the heavier particles of sand those which contain gold are carried to the farther end of the table thus as has been said all the stuff is fed on to the higher edge and carried down by the water until it falls off at the lower edge but during the journey from edge to edge the peculiar motion of the table causes the different kinds of sand to separate themselves so that the concentrates fall off near one end and the rest near the other end another interesting example of ingenuity is the well-known fru vanner in this the table is a broad endless band of india rubber extended upon two rollers one of which is slightly higher than the other the stream of water and crushed ore flows on at the upper end and runs down to the lower the lighter particles being carried down and dropped off at the lower end while the heavier rest upon the band meanwhile the turning of the rollers carries the band slowly along so that the heavier particles gradually ascend and are carried over at the upper end to assist in the separation the whole concern is given a side to side while it is at work we have seen so far how the ore is crushed and the coarser grains of gold got out of it by the aid of mercury the mixture of mercury and gold is termed amalgam and the process of extracting gold by mercury is called amalgamation the gold is actually dissolved in the mercury and so when the amalgam has been as it is periodically collected from the plant it has to be filtered and then evaporated in a retort the mercury vapor is caught 
and condensed back into a liquid while the gold is left in the retort in fact the amalgam is distilled in order to separate the gold and mercury but when all that is done we still have the concentrates from the vanners or whatever be used to deal with mercury is useless with them for the gold is covered probably with the coating of the other substances whatever they might be with which it has been associated or else there is mixed with the gold some substances which make amalgamation impossible or at least difficult often roasting is necessary before anything more can be done if arsenic or sulphur be present for example they interfere with the recovery of the gold and roasting will disperse them so the concentrates are passed through great furnaces in which they are heated in contact with air until these objectionable matters have been oxidized or burnt then finally we come to some process by which the remaining gold is dissolved out from its admixtures in some solvent liquid from which it can be subsequently precipitated this is rather interesting because it means that man has adopted to recover this gold from the ore the very method which it is believed nature employed to put it there as already said the latest idea is that the gold was carried into and deposited in the lodes where it is now to be found by water that the gold was actually dissolved in water at the time but of course gold in its metallic state will not dissolve in water salts of gold however the meaning of the term salt as applied to a metal has been explained earlier will dissolve in water as every photographer who makes up his own toning solution knows from experience gold will not dissolve in water but chloride of gold will and so the gold must have been carried to its resting place as salt and converted into the metallic form after arrival in the same way to recover these finest particles of all it has to be converted back into a salt then that salt must be dissolved and drained away from the other stuff and finally the gold must be thrown out of solution again in some way the great example of this operation is the familiar cyanide process the word familiar is appropriate to this matter in only one way however holders of shares in mining companies for example may hear about it repeatedly at shareholders meetings and prospectuses but very few have any clear idea as to what it is so i cannot be accused of telling an oft-told tale if i devote a short space to its consideration the combination of one atom of carbon and one atom of nitrogen is called cyanogen if cyanogen be given the chance it will take unto itself an atom of hydrogen producing the deadly hydrocyanatic or prussic acid alternatively if potassium be brought into combination with it there results potassium cyanide which 
with the assistance of water and oxygen, can dissolve gold. In applying this scientific fact to the purpose of recovering gold from the concentrates, the latter are placed in vats with a weak solution of the cyanide in water. This time, during which they are allowed to remain, depends upon the size of the gold particles. If they be comparatively large, it stands to reason that it must be longer than if they be small, for they will take longer to dissolve. After the proper time, which is found by experiment, the liquid is drawn off, and in some cases the concentrates are given a second dose to ensure that the gold shall be thoroughly removed and none left undissolved. If the material being operated upon be very fine, as it often is, forming what the mining people call slimes, then mechanical stirrers have to be used in the vats to keep the stuff moving, as otherwise the cyanide would not get to all the particles and some would not be acted upon. The liquid, having been the appropriate time in the vat, is drawn off, placed in wooden tanks or boxes, and fine shreds of zinc are added to it. Discs of sheet zinc are also put into a lathe and a fine shaving taken of them, and it is these fine shavings which are used. Now zinc, as we know from the fact that it is the essential part in electric batteries, has very pronounced electrical properties, and it is believed that these come into play here. At all events, the gold becomes deposited upon the zinc, while the zinc itself is to a certain extent eaten away by the solution. The result is a. a solution weaker than it was before, b. the remains of the shavings, and c. at the bottom of the box in which this process takes place, a dark mud. That black mud, on being heated, produces the bright metallic gold, and the object of the whole operation is achieved. The solution is then led to another tank brought up to its proper strength again and is ready to be used once more, while the remains of the shavings are used for the next batch of material to be treated. In some cases, the crushed ore straight from the crushing mill is cyanided. In others, it is simply the remains left over from the previous amalgamating process which is thus treated. All depends upon the nature of the material in question. There are other chemical methods besides the cyanating, but it is the chief. It has been found specially useful with the Johannesburg ores, and to it the South African gold fields owe a great deal of their success. There is a modern form of it, although the whole process is quite novel having been introduced only in the nineties of the last century. This development, it is almost wearing to repeat, is electrical. Instead of the zinc shavings being used to precipitate the gold out of the solution, the process is electrolytic. A lead anode is used while the process is carried on in a box 
the bottom of which is covered with mercury which forms the cathode the precipitated gold is thus amalgamated the amalgam being removed at intervals retorted and the gold recovered the idea of recovering gold from the waters of the sea is certainly a most attractive one to some it is true the suggestion may bring thoughts the reverse of pleasant for there have been several partially successful attempts to delude the public with specious promises of vast dividends to be gathered in the form of pure gold from the inexhaustible sea still there is something in it and some day the dreams may be realized the quantity of gold dissolved in sea-water is so small in two hundred cubic centimetres it is impossible to detect it even by the most delicate test known the quantity needs to be multiplied threefold before the quantity of gold becomes even detectable to say nothing of being recoverable a writer in cassier's magazine a few years ago related how he had actually obtained gold from the water of long island sound but whereas he got two dollars worth it cost him over four thousand dollars to do it no company will ever be floated on results such as that from the mud of a creek near new york however he did a little better for their ten dollars worth of gold only cost three hundred and seventy nine dollars a company promoter would still look askance at even that comparatively successful undertaking as usual the authorities differ but there is a consensus of opinion that in every ton of sea-water there is from one-half to one grain of gold besides silver and iodine it seems as if the water were able to dissolve that amount and no more if as has been suggested earlier in this chapter all the gold which is now found in mines and in gravel beds was carried there in water it is probable that the sea obtains its gold from the same original sources and that just as the hot ocean of ages ago carried its burden of gold in solution so the colder water of to-day has its share the cold water naturally carrying less than the hot did it is quite likely then that could we find out how to rob the sea of its precious metal it could replenish its store from the secret hoard of its own but even if it could not it would make little difference to us since what it holds is far more than we could ever use put it at half a grain per ton there are four thousand two hundred and five million tons in every cubic mile of ocean and three hundred million cubic miles of water in the ocean if all the gold that man has ever handled were to be dissolved in the sea no chemist would be able to discover that fact on the other hand if that half grain per ton which we believe to be in the ocean now were to be recovered we should have about forty thousand million tons of gold a prospect which is enough to make the political economist turn pale 
with apprehension. What is required is some substance which, on being added to seawater, will combine with the gold and then be precipitated, that is to say, fall to the bottom. The precipitate, that which falls to the bottom, would need to be heavy, so that it would fall quickly and not necessitate the water being left standing for long periods. It would need to be cheap, too, or easily recoverable, so that it could be used over and over again. And finally, it would need to be such that the gold, having been captured by it, could easily be obtained from it. Given such a precipitant, the process of recovering the gold would be simple and cheap. Tanks would be formed in sheltered bays and in inlets. At every tide these would be filled, and when full, the precipitant would be added. The tide falling, the water would run out again and leave the precipitate on the floor of the tanks, whence it could be removed by scraping. Simple treatment would release the gold from its partner, which would then be returned to the tanks to act as a precipitant once more. Thus, by simple means, the tide itself assisting, the gold could be attained from the sea. And there is nothing inherently impossible about this suggestion. The necessary precipitant may exist, awaiting discovery. A large works operating in this manner would produce, it is estimated, about 13 tons of gold per annum. It looks as if it would be a bad day for the rand when that discovery is made. And there is yet another possibility, though less alluring than what has just been described. The American writer mentioned a little while back got a better return from the mud of a creek than from the water itself. In all probability this is due to the action of organic matter carried down by streams, or in some other way introduced into the waters of the creek, whence the mud was obtained. This organic matter would probably have an effect as a precipitant upon the dissolved gold causing it to be thrown out of solution and deposited in the mud. Thus the mud around our shores, and particularly in the creeks and estuaries, may be potential gold mines, whence in time to come we may draw supplies of the precious metal. The cyanide, or some similar process, may be needed in order that we may extract the metal from its enclosing mud but the time may not be so very far distant when dredging for gold may be a regular occupation at, for example, the mouths of the Thames and the Hudson. End of section 9 Recording by Linda Marie Nielsen, Vancouver, B.C.